I was so encouraged this week as I looked at the picture board that they've got of all the different activities that are going on and the verses that are up there and uh, just what our ladies are doing with our children. It'll be a blessing if you have time to just go back and see what our ladies are doing. So if you would uh, turn in your Bibles with me and stand, if you can, for the reading of God's Word from the book of Romans. And we are in chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. So we'll be finishing up chapter 13 today as we journey through this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now the high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, honestly, honorably, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Father, as Paul is ending the practical living part of this book, in this letter, starting with chapter 12, Lord, we are being overwhelmed with what a Christian looks like. What are the marks of a Christian? And he began this section by saying, in view of God, your incredible, infinite wisdom and mercy, that God, that you have committed every single soul under sin in order that you might have mercy on every single soul. So because of your mercies that are just so vast, Paul is beseeching us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And in chapter 12 and 13, Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to tell us exactly what that looks like. And so God, today as we're closing up, Paul really hones in on three attributes, three marks that a believer distinguishes him. And God, I pray that these three simple truths will guide our hearts, will guide our minds, will guard our actions. We pray, Father, this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So there's three things that Paul wants to remind us of. Three things that will shape our lives. They're simple things. They're not heavy doctrine. They're not things that are mystical, hard for us to get our minds around, but they really are hard to live out practically, consistently. The three things that Paul wants us to do as believers that will mark us as his children are love, vigilance, and holiness. Those three principles are powerful. What we major on in the Christian life will really determine the way we live our Christian life. You know, if our concerns are on others and our eyes are looking at the way other people live their Christian life, we quickly slide into having a judgmental spirit. We become critical. And if we're not careful, we get arrogant. If we lack convictions and we don't emphasize Bible doctrine that's sound, we are inconsistent. We tend to get lukewarm and often hypocritical because we waffle and vacillate back and forth. The three things that Paul mentions here today, they're neither profound doctrine, they're not deep theological, but they are very, very practical in changing our life if we consistently put them into practice. The first thing that Paul mentions is living with a debt of love. A debt of love that is never paid off. The second thing that Paul mentions here is an attitude of vigilance. Vigilance is being alert, spiritually awake, spiritually alive, living with Christ moment by moment. And making sure, lastly, that our habits, our thoughts, are consistent and in agreement with God's holy, spotless character. Those three things. So the first thing that we're going to address here is love. Love fulfills every single demand of the law. I like things to be explained to me in simple terms. You remember that little anacronym, KISS? Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> That's me. I remember um, a, a movie that I watched as a, I don't know, as a teenager probably, but uh, it was these old, old cowboy, and uh, he had taken some city slickers and taken them out on a rodeo roundup. And I think his name, I don't remember what his name was, the old leathery, wrinkled up old cowboy. Curly? That's what I thought it was. Okay. So some of us who are the same generation, we know this, this movie. <laughs> but he's, he'd put an old crinkled finger up and he'd say one thing. Well, if 
Jesus was asked, and he was asked, what is the one thing that we need to get? What is the one commandment? We've got 613 of them. And Jesus said this in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Hear this, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second commandment is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. For all 613, they hinge, they hang on those commandments. And the scribe that asked the question said, Jesus, you have answered truly. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He really got it. He said, this is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that this scribe was different than the other ones who were asking him questions. The other questions were purposely meant to trip Jesus up, and that question was as well, but the scribe got under conviction, and he said, that's exactly right. That's more important than all the religion that you and I can do. And Jesus looked at him, and he said, I see that you've answered wisely. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. You are on the right track. You are so close to understanding the God of the Bible, the God of eternity. God is love. And he that loveth knoweth God, and he that loveth not knoweth not God. That's how simple, really, Christianity is. We can boil all of God's desires for us in this one commandment to love because it fulfills all of God's moral law. Now, when Paul says to owe no one, it's actually a double negative in the original language, owe no one nothing. It's emphatic. He's not giving us a prohibition against borrowing money. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how to lend money to people who need something. And we're to lend as if we're letting it go, not asking for it back. So Paul is not giving a prohibition against borrowing money. <clears throat> a lot of Christian financial counselors will tell you, don't ever borrow money. And they'll use this verse, but that's not what Paul is emphasizing here. The emphasis is, if you do borrow money, make sure that you are always up to date with your debts. And when it's paid off, you make sure that you pay it off in full. But there is one debt that you can never pay off. You can never get to the point and say, I have done enough when it comes to love. It is the great love of Christ, Paul says, that compels us. Old King James says it constrains us. It pushes us forward because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all were dead. And those of us who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who loved us and died for us. 
the greatest motive for the Christian life is love. And it's a debt that is never fully paid. The debt of love can never be paid off. You think about what Christ did. Hereby we perceive love because Christ laid down his life for us. The rest of that verse says, and we ought. The Greek word ought is the exact same word to owe, a debt. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. When we grasp what Christ has done for us, nothing is too much to ask for you and I. And then Paul <clears throat> uses a different word for another. So the first one is a reciprocal pronoun, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another, it's a completely different Greek word. One of them is alas, and the other one is heteros. And the word heteros means another of a different kind, and it has the direct article. It's almost untranslatable in English, but it's the different person. It's easy to love those who are like us, isn't it? Tax collectors love other tax collectors. Sinners love other sinners. And what do Christians do more than others? We love those that are so different, people that we normally wouldn't get along with, and we are commanded to love them. And then it tells us why. For the one who loves another, he has fulfilled the law. The tense there is a tense that means you have done it, you have fulfilled it, and you will keep on fulfilling it if you are loving other people. So I want to point out three things about biblical love that you and I need to understand. First of all, love does not keep track of what you've paid. Love, secondly, doesn't keep track of wrongs. It's a debt that can never be paid. So you don't go about reminding people what you've done. I remember the first church that I pastored. I was 29 years old. I should not have been a pastor at 29. I can guarantee you that. But I got myself into a hornet's nest. And I think I took on a church that was a hornet's nest. But I remember one Sunday, <clears throat> I wasn't being the obedient 29-year-old pastor that they had hired. And the deacons were all mad at me. And one Sunday morning, I was preaching, and a guy got up, and he says, and we even bought you that new suit that you got on. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I've wanted to just take it off, but... My birthday suit was even worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> you never know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> so I, I, I say all that to say you don't keep track. That Love doesn't remind you of what you've done. Secondly, biblical love is without an expectation or a condition put to it. You owe them nothing other than to love. And thirdly, love is never finished. We can't ever get to the point where we say, you know what, I am done loving that person. I've done enough for them. Now, I know there are times where it takes wisdom, and you say, you know, 
The loving thing is no longer to do this and this for them and to push them out on their own, but you're still doing that because you love them. Love and the law are not exclusive. But what Paul is saying here, when he gets all, lists all these commands, what he's saying is this very spirit of the law is love. That is the essence of the law. It's deeper than just doing things. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, First John says. This thing is true and in him and in you, because the darkness has passed, and the true light is now shining. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. The law can be performed and yet miss the spirit of the law. And when you are loving, not only do you commit the, the practice of the law, whatever prohibition that the law might give, and whatever positive commands that the law gives, you are also keeping the heart and the spirit and the attitude of the law. Love is ultimately the summing up of everything that God wants you and I to do. You think about what the fruit of the Spirit is. And the very first thing that Paul mentions in the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then when he lists all nine different characteristics of the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our life, he says, and against such things there is no law. And if we walk in the Spirit, it's the Greek word parapeteo, to move along, let us also walk. I'm sorry, I misquoted that. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk. And the word walk, he uses the word walk twice there. But the second one is a military term. And it means to march in order and sequence. You're listening to the cadence of the Holy Spirit. And when you are doing that, you are loving people and you will break none of God's moral righteous laws. So the, the next thing that Paul talks about, and we don't really preach on this very much in our churches, and that is an attitude of vigilance, watchfulness, alertness, spiritually awake. I'm, I'm amazed how easy it is to fall asleep spiritually. Have you ever been praying and you pray about something and then the next thing you know your mind is chasing that thing for about the next five minutes and you forgot you were praying? You've got to be alert. You've got to be awake. I'll read my Bible. I kid you not. I'll get to the end of the chapter and I won't even know a word that I've read. Why? Because our minds drift so quickly. I can have a great time in prayer and great time in devotion. I mean, it was so humbling this week. I had a wonderful time. I got up early in the morning, got out of my back deck, tried to memorize a passage of Scripture. My wife asked me if I'll come and give her some help 
And so I'm digging this hole for and I'm pulling this concrete out. And we've just had this, all this beautiful gravel laid down for us. A man in the church just voluntarily put it down for us. And, and I'm taking this dirt and I'm just chucking it everywhere. And my wife says, Patrick, you're getting the dirt all over the new gravel. And here I, I just had this wonderful devotion. And I looked at her and I said, well, where do you want me to put it? I know where she wanted me to put it. <laughs> she didn't tell me, though. And she just looked at me. And I thought, you idiot, you ogre. How can you have such a wonderful time in prayer? It's because we have got to be vigilant. It is so important. And so Paul says, and this, in verse 11, and this, it's, it's not, if you're going to be loving people, and you're going to keep on loving people, and you're going to pay this debt, well, you have got to be vigilant, you've got to be on your guard, and this. So, vigilant, I've defined it as this, keeping awake spiritually, alert, always on your guard, carefully watching the flesh keeping an eye on the world and demonic influences. We need to have a sense of urgency in our spiritual life. And this vigilance, it comes when you and I know the times that we're living in. I'm thankful that Rick is teaching on Sunday morning the times of the rapture, the end times. And I think Paul is alluding to that in this passage. And do this knowing the time that is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. I think he's, he's alluding to the rapture. And, and whether that's specifically what he's saying, he's definitely, Paul is definitely, and the Holy Spirit is telling us, we need to be careful observance of the times that we are living in. Whatever culture, whatever group, whatever thing that you're doing at work, we need to be, we need to be aware of what's going on around us. There's two words in the original language for time. The first one is chronos, where we get the word chronology, and it is time-sequenced. Chronology in chronological order. And Paul does not use that word here. He uses the word kairos. It's an event, a critical period. It's an epoch of time that you and I are facing. It is a particular period in human history. Thayer, the Greek lexicon, defines it as this. It is a fixed, definite time when things are being brought to a head. In the context, I think it has eschatological overtones, but Paul says we need to be alert on what is going on around us in our environment so that we can take advantage of those opportunities that are given to us. We are living in some really, really unique times, aren't we? All we have to do is watch a little bit of the news. Hear what's going on religiously. 
there's a, there's a couple barometers, I think, that, that you and I can look to. And one is the ecumenical religious movement. Keep an eye on some of the things that our Pope is saying. Because he in more and more is alluding to a one world religious order. Keep an eye on global government and movements. They want to take more and more control of our lives and less and less of God. And keep an eye on the nation of Israel. We need to be alert. We need to be awake. We need to be vigilant. And Paul says it's high time. What he means by that is you're You've, you've been a, a baby Christian long enough. You've been fed on milk long enough. The dawn is starting to rise, and that's when you get out of bed. That's when you prepare yourself for work. And as believers, we need to get off of milk. We need to get serious about the Christian life because we are living in the last days of the last days. And I know generation after generation has said that. But Paul, when he says your salvation is nearer than when you believe, that's true for all of us, isn't it? Every single passing day, we are one day closer to the rapture. That's one thing that we do know for sure. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but I do know this, that we were closer than we were yesterday. So Paul wants us to be vigilant Time to awake. Spiritual alertness. The word that Paul uses here for sleep is the Greek word hypnos. Isn't that something? It means that you've just been lulled to sleep. We get apathetic. We go to church. We sing the songs. We read our Bibles. We have our devotions. And Paul says, don't let those things hypnotize you. Always be engaged in your mind. I've done something this week that I haven't, well, not, I, I started it about three or four weeks ago. I went out and just bought me a 89-cent little spiral notebook. I started writing the date, and then I start, started to take one chapter. I haven't done this in ages. And I just started doing inductive Bible study, and I'm amazed at what I'm getting out of my Bible reading. I encourage everyone to do this. Take a notebook. Write down your thoughts. Bombard that text with question after question. What is being said? Who's he talking to? Why? In order that. Look at all those clauses. That's one way to stay spiritually alert, just practically. There needs to be a sense of spiritual responsibility. Spiritual ignorance. There's no excuse for it. The writer of Hebrews said this, you ought to be teachers by now, but you need someone to come back and give you milk because meat is for those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So spiritual ignorance, there's no excuse for it. Casting off and putting on signifies a definite decision. Let us therefore, because the night is far spent, 
It's time to wake up. It's time to be walking in the light. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Notice the let us both times. It's a subjunctive, and it's encouraging us to action. It's a mood not of reality. It's a mood imploring us to do something. So casting off and putting on our definite decisions. And here's the application. We need to realize that we're living in the days of Noah. We don't have time for spiritual lethargy. Sin will overtake anyone who drops his guard. The enemy is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Peter says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Be vigilant. He actually uses that word. Be awake. Sin will overtake us the minute we drop our guard. Opportunities are for those who are availing themselves because they are alert. Putting on the armor of light. The word for armor is translated earlier in this book as an instrument. So the armor is a tool. It's everything that God has availed you with to live the Christian life victoriously. So two things that will change our Christian life is one, realizing that I have a debt of love that will never be paid off. I don't keep track of the things that I do for others. I do things for others without any expectations. And I realize that this debt will never be paid off. I am vigilant. I'm awake. I understand the times that I'm living in. I look for those opportunities. I don't drop my guard. I keep my mind engaged when I'm praying, when I'm reading, when I'm interacting with people. And thirdly, Paul talks about holiness, verses 13 and 14. So verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13 and 14, he says, Let us walk. Now, any Bible student knows the word walk in the New Testament literally means the way you live your Christian life moment by moment. Okay? So that's what Paul is saying here. Let us live our Christian life moment by moment. And then he gives an adverb on telling us how to do it. And he tells us to do it Honestly, Old King James, because that's probably the best word to translate this word. The New King James says properly, or it can be translated honorably, or decently. So this is the way, and when you think of honest, that means complete forthrightness, doesn't it? That means you are giving people all the information that they need to have. Honestly means that you are not hiding anything. There's no ulterior motive in what you're doing. And that is the way that we are to consistently live our Christian life. 
Because everything that you and I do is being observed by God. There is nothing naked before the one to whom we must give an account. My mama used to tell me every time I would leave the house, I mean, oh man, she knew how to get me. I never had fun having sin. (laughs) She would tell me, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And my buddies, we'd get in the car. And I'm not going to tell you what they used to do. I wouldn't have any part of it. But I would think, Lord Jesus, you're looking down right now and you're watching all of this. I don't know how many times that got me out of trouble. And that is the way holiness ought to be. God, it's all in the light. What I'm going to do in the secret, one day God's going to proclaim it from the housetop, so we better do it right the first time, huh? Let us walk properly. And then he gives a comparison clause to further explain what it means. Nothing is hidden by being all that you appear to be. Life is consistent. It is constant. It's under scrutiny of God's light. Ephesians 5.10 tells us that you and I are children of light. And we are to walk as children of light. And those who are children of light are constantly testing what is acceptable to the Lord. So if I'm going to walk honestly, properly, as in the day, I am always testing it. I'm always shining God's light on my thoughts, my actions, my deeds so that I am a holy vessel to the Lord. Then he gives us three couplets to avoid and I'm not going to go into great detail with these. I'll just simply read them and make a couple of comments. So the first couplet is revelry and drunkenness. The word revelry causes... I can't pronounce it right now. I can't think of uh, well, I can look at my text here and tell you what it is. You, that doesn't matter anyway. But the idea of this word was during the twilight hours, this word was used to describe those who would go through the streets to call out other people during the dark hours so no one could see what they were doing in honor of the god Bacchus who brought out all debauchery and lowering of inhibitions so that you can behave in a way that you normally wouldn't. And there's a lot of wisdom here, isn't there? We need to be careful of things that will lower our inhibitions. And they can be simple things. Not just alcohol or illicit drug use. Other things can drop our coarse jesting. All these things lower our sensibilities. And as believers, we are to be pursuing holiness. The next couplet of things that Paul gives us are sexual things, lewdness and lust. The last couplet is strife and envy. It's an aggressive attitude. Zelos is the Greek word. 
And it means always wanting to prove yourself as right. Those are the things that we're going to, we need to avoid. Now, practical holiness happens by design. It happens intentionally. And he uses two words, two imperative commands. One is to put on, and the other one is to make. No. So let's look at those two commands as we're finishing up this passage on what holiness is. But put on, and the, the word to put on, like I said, it's a present imperative, something that we're doing all the time, but it has to do with clothing. And it's in the middle voice. And we don't use the middle voice in English. But in the middle voice, the idea is that you are both doing the acting and you are participating in the action. And the word to clothe, it's a strange idiom in the original language. It means to sink down into the garment. It's like having a pair of trousers and you lift them up and you just lift your legs and you sink down and they clothe you and they cover you, you are both receiving the clothing and you are doing the action and we are to be doing that with Jesus Christ. We are sinking our lives down into Him. Socrates and other Greek philosophers use the exact same term as a figure of speech to express taking on the attributes of your instructor instructor to emulate his life. Christ has left us an example, hasn't he? And that's what we are to clothe ourselves with. Now let's look at the, the negative part of this command. Make no. And what are we not to allow for? I love this word, provision. Now, when I go backpacking, I will always sit down with my food bag and I will count how many days I'm gone and I will make sure I have provisions. Now, some of you who go with me think, that guy don't make provisions for nothing. <laughs> Kelly's up here shaking his head. No, he's always begging my food. <laughs> but I, I try to do it because I backpack. backpack. But we make provisions, don't we? It's pro, that means before, right? Vision, looking forward. So as believers, we are to look forward and know those things that are going to trip us up. If I walk down this aisle, I know they've got booze on that aisle. I'm going to go with four vision and I am not going to walk down that way. I know that they've got magazines over here on that bottom shelf. I'm not going to walk down that aisle. I'm not going to look down at that bottom shelf because I know I don't want to go that way. And as believers, so many times, my wife used to tell this to my kids, you put your toes right up to the line and see how far you can put them across. Making provisions, just seeing how close we can get to the filth and the junk of the world. And Paul says, don't make any... Go out of your way. Think with forethought what is going to help you live a holy and righteous life. Stop making provisions. Pro-noia is the Greek word, or pro-noias, I'm sorry, pro-neo, which it literally means also to think beforehand. Now, I want to conclude this with, with saying some things about American 
Christianity at large. And at large, I think the Western church, the church in the United States, is weak and apathetic. We are preoccupied many times with theological debates because we've got too much time on our hands. Believers in other countries, they're not worried about all the different isms. They're more concerned about are they going to deny Jesus Christ if they are tortured? Or where are we going to meet next Sunday because now the authorities know where we're getting together? They're thinking more about, how can I love that person? How can I practically impact them? How can I share my faith with somebody who needs Jesus Christ? But we get wrapped up in a lot of theological debate, and I am probably worse than anybody. I'll get on my computer, and I'm supposed to be studying. My wife will come in, and she says, are you listening to that guy again? Beat his drum, get on his hobby horse. So I'm preaching to myself. We have our preferences, the way we like our music, the way we like worship service, with lights, smoke, and mirrors, and all the rest of it. I hardly think that that was a New Testament concern when the Romans were breathing down your neck. We like to be entertained in our Christian churches. We like messages that make us feel good when we go home. But the worst thing about Christianity in America is we have an attitude that it just doesn't really matter whether people hear the gospel or not. We get caught up straining out gnats, and the whole time we as believers are swallowing camels. The weightier matters of the law, Jesus said, these things you ought to do, justice, mercy, and faith. In this passage, Paul has given us three simple things to do. Love. Love one another. Live vigilantly. Live a holy life. If we make it our aim toward others, that I have a mindset, that I have a debt to them that can never be fully paid, it will transform us. Love doesn't keep records. Love has no ulterior motives. And love is never finished. Love fulfills the law. Second, vigilance. Vigilance is recognizing the times that we're living in. It is spiritually staying alert. Always on your guard for opportunities for God to use you. And holiness that is actively pursuing an intimate walk with Jesus. Paul said it like this, that I might know him power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. If by any means I might be conformed to his death, be ye holy for he is holy. It means avoiding any situation proactively that will compromise your walk with Jesus and your testimony to the world. Three things so this day, I ask you, maybe you don't have your bulletin. Maybe you just have a piece of paper. Go home today and just write three things on your refrigerator. and Put a magnet. I'm going to love. That's a debt I'll never pay off. I'm going to be a vigilant. I'm going to be vigilant this week. I'm going to be alert. And I'm going to strive to live a holy life 
and have quick confessions when I stumble. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, God, thank you, Holy Spirit, for breathing these words through the Apostle Paul. Thank you that 2,000 years later, they are just as living and active and powerful, discerning our thoughts and the intents of our heart. God, I pray this week that, God, it won't be in the ear and then out the ear when we walk through the door. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit will write them on the fleshly tablet of our heart. We pray this for your glory. We pray it, Father, for our growth, and we pray it, God, that we will impact a world living in the times that we are living in, that they need Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.